Hi, I'm Jennifer Love of the Living Wealthy Institute, and this is The Nature of Money Show. Did 2020 leave you feeling disoriented or disconnected maybe from yourself and others? Dramatic disruptions continue to shake our financial world to its core, revealing vulnerabilities in how we live, relate to, and interact with money. And many of us feel more alone in our relationship with money than ever before. And in this season of The Nature of Money, we'll begin to take a deeper dive into the inner workings that laid the foundation for how several successful female founders developed their personal money narrative. And you'll get a peek into the deeper layers, which ordinarily stay hidden behind the garden gate of our busy lives. And you'll begin to get to know me through various parts of my own story and the perspectives of experts in various fields. Together, we're going to explore those core beliefs about money and worth and where they come from. And what are the limitations caused by our old money narratives? And how do those limitations affect us? I'm a career entrepreneur with over 20 years of experience. I've started and run my own businesses and advise leaders in growing theirs. My mission as a money therapist is to empower leaders to end what I call emotional poverty and to grow their internal net worth right alongside growing their investments and businesses ultimately, to live wealthy. I'm excited to share these stories with you. And so subscribe right now to The Nature of Money wherever you find podcasts to get episodes as soon as they drop. I believe the Cinderella story has perpetuated an unwholesomeness in how we, especially those of us who identify as women, relate with our sense of worthiness and value. The ending of this classic story has women across the kingdom fighting and trying all kinds of antics to get her foot to fit into the tiny glass slipper in an effort to feel worthy enough to be chosen and loved by Prince Charming. In the last episode, we examined how Cinderella became a slave in her own home, how her internal programming perpetuated a victim state of learned helplessness, and We all have a Cinderella inside of us, that part of us who is waiting or hoping or expecting to be saved by whatever form Prince Charming takes in our life. The question is, can you change your unconscious and genetic programming? And in doing so, can you change your relationship with self-value and worthiness and ultimately money? Must we allow our sense of value and worthiness to be dictated by our ancestors? our circumstances, or other things outside of ourselves as demonstrated in the Cinderella story? Or do we have another choice? You might want and try to do things differently than your parents, with your health, your finances, your relationships. In my own life, in my work with leaders as well, what I observe is that the often the harder we try and resist, the more tightly entangled the emotional and behavioral patterns become. And to break these patterns, we must first understand what they are and where they come from because our money stories affect how you spend and save and invest and manage and make and give money. What we discover as we unpack our money stories is that both nature and nurture are at play. It may seem that rewiring your nurtured money programming may be easier to shift than your genetic wiring, 
But is that really true? I spoke again with Dr. Catherine Guile in our last episode about epigenetics, the science of changing our genes, along with the voices of several female founders as we continue to unpack their stories. And Dr. Guile is back to talk about how epigenetics, specific inherited genetic traits, compound over generations. Again, Dr. Catherine Guile is the founder of Making Everything Fun, providing resources in wellness and nutrition and leadership and publishing. She's a certified epigenetics coach through Aperian Academy, and she believes that wellness is the key to life. Here's Catherine. Well, it is definitely compounding, and there's tons of science on this. Uh, the True Health Initiative by Dr. David Katz is doing a lot of great research and, and conferences on this area. I'm hearing numbers like seven generations back, 14, and then I'm even hearing thousands of generations back. So uh, there's a lot also that's recent in the research around what happens in the womb. So what just popped into my mind was this visual of a chain. And here we are in a very difficult time in the world with a pandemic and with adversity comes opportunity. I am just going to, I know it's hard for people right now and many of us are struggling and, and dealing with some very new and very uncertain times. However, there's such an opportunity to come out of all of this better versions of ourselves and not just for ourselves, but for the future generations to come. So I'm going to go to that chain. We just talked about how epigenetics, genetics, all of this is transgenerational and it's compounding, right? And maybe some of us are seeing that the world is not going in the right direction in terms of what we're doing to the environment, what we're doing to our bodies, to our health, what's happening in terms of, uh, you know, chronic disease in this country and in this world. So what's important here is to look at that chain and say, where am I? What link am I? And how am I going to break the chain so that we don't continue going in that same direction towards, you know, climate change, global warming, you know, depleting our earth's resources, but instead, and actually becoming sicker versions of ourselves, but instead empowering our children to have a healthy life, a healthy lifestyle, healthy place to live and letting them be free of all this junk that basically I'm kind of visually seeing that past chain is just, it's all gunked up. It's like what a chain looks like underwater when it's, you know, on a more of a boat and all this algae and dirt and muckety muck is all over it. A very, very scientific technical word, by the mm -hmm. way, muckety muck. Um, so that's what it looks like. And you know what, let's, let's wash it off. Let's polish it up and maybe even break it and say, here you go, make your own chain. It can be a shiny, sparkly, something else, um, and bring it to the future. You know, I was talking to my mom the other day and, you know, she is having a tough time with the isolation and COVID and, and she was telling me how excited she is. And it's kind of like a prayer slash meditation combination, but she's just, oh, I can just hear her voice beaming over the phone because she has really embraced that. And it doesn't become this like checklist, got to do so many things. It's very overwhelming. It becomes this beautiful nurturing thing. And the stories then that she tells herself are more kind, are more gentle, are more loving. I am safe. 
that is what she needs to be telling herself during all of this crazy spinning world of the pandemic. She needs to be sitting in meditation or prayer and saying, I am safe. I am whole. I am healthy. I am loved. To be loved, to know we are safe. Is it really that simple? Yet, like Cinderella in her relationship with her nasty stepmother and stepsisters, how many of us women have relationships with other women that belittle, demean, keep us down, which is the opposite of what Dr. Catherine described with her mother? Historically, many women have a suppressive relationship and reputation when it comes to relating with other women. We find examples of this kind of behavior in the animal kingdom, and it's been deemed the crab in the bucket mentality. And Wikipedia describes it as a way of thinking that if I can't have it, neither can you. Now, the metaphor is derived from a pattern of behavior that's noted in crabs when they're trapped in a bucket or a pot of boiling hot water. While any one of the crabs could easily escape, its efforts are undermined by the others, ensuring the group's collective demise. The analogy in human behavior is that members of a group will attempt to reduce the self-confidence of any other member who achieves success beyond the others out of envy, resentment, spite, conspiracy, or competitive feelings, all to halt their progress. And for many women, even when they have achieved what they want, their attitude is one of, I've sacrificed so much to get here, you must earn your way the hard way too. Ooh, this buildup of toxic unrepressed anger results in them hindering other women in pursuit of their dreams. I believe that this goes against women's natural state of collaboration and community, evidence for why we need to work through our money stories and our emotional scar tissue. And Dr. Catherine's analogy of her mother's COVID story from one of fear to one of inner harmony and emotional safety by using practices and tools, it shows us what's possible. Caring for ourselves, gifting ourselves the time and space to understand our own emotions and needs and to find what we need can have a huge ROI. But does that make us self-centered, you might wonder? There's a basement and a balcony to most all things in life. Cinderella's story, cooking and cleaning and not attending to her own needs, is evidence of why we need more wholesome self-centeredness self-sacrifice expressed in many forms like not charging what you're worth over giving of time money resources it leads you to burnout or to being stuck in a cycle of poor self-worth all in the name of being the hero or the delusion of becoming successful and my research shows me that the cardinal rule and virtue of martyrdom often revered by women to be the thing that they need to do no matter what the cost leads to a wallet filled with resentment and frustration and anger. So certainly in the state of emptied out, we pull others down with us. And the moral of the story is that filling yourself up gives you more capacity to be available to help others fill theirs. Hey everyone. This episode has a special sponsor. Over at Ziva Meditation, you'll find tools to help you transition from worrier to warrior, all in one place. The world may be stressed, but you don't have to be. Inside Ziva Meditation Self-Care Center, you'll find meditations, visualizations, bodywork and movement, and resources for you parents and your kiddos. 
Emily Fletcher, founder of Ziva Meditation, and I have spent time together, and we share similar values. And I can personally say that this is one talented meditation guide. And so I'm confident that by putting you in the hands of her and her programs, you'll find your way into more peace and calm amidst your busy life. Use http colon forward slash forward slash bit dot ly forward slash Ziva meditation. Next, we'll hear from three female founders about how they shifted their money stories by shifting how they care for themselves. And first up is my dear friend, Dr. Suzanne Bennett. Suzanne is a very talented and very knowledgeable functional doctor, and she's the best-selling author of several books, the CEO and the founder of the skincare company, Purigenics, and the host of iHeartRadio's show, Wellness for Life. Dr. Suzanne, what did your family of origin teach you about money, worth, and deserving? I grew up in a developing country. I'm from Seoul, Korea, South Korea. And um, this was in the heels of the Korean War. So I was born in the early 60s, 62. So uh, there was a lot. And interestingly enough, my father worked for the U.S. government. So we lived all around the military. So a lot of the Americans, uh, whether they were uh, the Army or the Navy or the the um, uh, Marines, they the families, that's who I was surrounded by. I lived off base because I, I was Korean and I you know, grew up in a Korean household, I spoke Korean up until my mom and dad decided to send me to Korean uh, English-speaking military school. So then I switched over. And the one thing that I remember, because I remember very clearly at a very young age that I uh, lived in a very tumultuous household, super dysfunctional. My father, the thing that I remember about him was the alcoholic breath. He was an alcoholic, uh, workaholic, womanizer, spendaholic, and, you know, a lot of abuse in the family, physical abuse. So I grew up in a very dysfunctional. But my mother, she had four kids, like back to back, you know, two and a half years in between or two years in between each child we have four. And what I remember was that my mom had to do whatever it took for us to have money. My father made good money from the type of business he, he I mean, the work he did with the U.S. government as a civil service uh, member and, and did all sorts of liaison work between the Blue House and the White House. The Blue House is like the White House in Korea. So the presidents and all that and with the White House. So, um, but with that, he didn't bring the money home and because he used it for his own, you know, pleasures and fun and what he needed. But so my mom would have to figure out how do I raise our children here with good food. And the one thing my mom did, I remember so clearly, she was a, an entrepreneur at heart. I learned from really my mother more than anything, um, the spirit of being an entrepreneur and you know, do whatever it takes for what comes your way. Whatever hardship it is, you got to find a way to, to make it happen and make sure that you have food on the table. And what my mom did was she worked as a commissary. Commissary is like um, just a, a, a big sh store on, on the military base. My mom would go and he'd, she'd work at the cash register, barely speaking any English, but she knew numbers. So knowing numbers, um, 
she was able to do that. And I remember her bringing home butter, Folgers coffee in a big, big can, and, um, and spam. Those three things, coffee, because meat in Korea was very, very hard to come by. And the military is really what got spam. I and mean, people know what spam is now, but the military is really the one that spread them, spam all around uh, the Asian cultures because they were in different, you know, posts. So my mom would bring that home and she would sell it to her girlfriends, Korean girlfriends. And to the point where she started making a major business doing that, buying. And I mean, that's, so she did what she had to do to start making money and making enough so that she couldn't take care of the household. The words I would hear, you know, the narrative I would hear from a mother is you cannot, you cannot trust a man. Number one, because he could do whatever he could spend your, the money he can, you know, spend it and use it on someone else and be with another woman. I mean, I can, she can go on and on because my mom, she experienced it with my father. And so she, we had three girls in the family. And for some reason, that one set right in into my mind, you know, thinking, you know, I got to do the work. I'm not, I'm not going to rely on a husband. Early on, Dr. Suzanne learned the value of self-reliance. This value has paid dividends in her life. We'll hear more from her in a moment. First, listen to Kanae Corridor, a former Morgan Stanley financial advisor who's now the CEO of The Presidential Lifestyle and a national certified counselor and hypnotherapist specializing in stress management. I grew up in Chicago, mainly on the South side. Um, We had my parents, my dad was in advertising, my mom was in marketing, and that's kind of how they met. And so we had a lot of money around us and we knew a lot of people with money, even though we didn't consider ourselves, most people would look and say, yes, you were upper middle class. However, because we were around people who were millionaires, it didn't seem like we were much of anything because we didn't have millions. So growing up in Chicago around these wealthy people, and they were entrepreneurs because they all they owned a marketing, one owned a marketing agency, one owned an advertising agency. Most of my life was about hard work. My parents worked hard. My grandparents worked hard. And what I mean by hard work, my grandfather had two full-time jobs. This is the man who raised me, who raised my mother, who also was a very hard worker. And all I knew was hard work. You got to work hard. You got to work hard. You got to work hard. You know, society tells you that this American dream is like, go to school, get a good job, work hard, have kids, buy a house. It was like this plain, you just step-by-step process that didn't work though. And so I was working hard and I was working hard. Most of the time I had two jobs. Even when I was in high school, I was always working. Well, I was going to school and work or either I had two jobs, one of those two, but I was making sure I was doing the hard work. And then one day I just realized, hmm, I'm working hard, but I still don't feel prosperous. I still don't feel the money coming as fast as it is for some of these people I see on the golf course or at the country club. And so something's not right here. And it made me start to question if it's, if it's not hard work, what is it? So back to confusion. I'm like, okay, money is not enough. 
and hard work is not even going to get you the money that's supposed to be a pathway to the enoughness. So what is it? It's not the money. It's not the hard work. I just need to know what it is. And I continue to sit, set out on this journey. And it's like, I just always wanted to do something new because I thought maybe if I found something meaningful, maybe that make would fill the void that I was feeling. That was the overall what I remember about growing up and money. Just like, okay, this is good, but it's not enough. And I've been working hard and I'm tired and I still feel broke <laughs> because I'm spending a lot of what I make. I mean, I have savings, but that's still small compared to some of these millionaires I see out here chilling on a golf course. And I grew up in a very male dominated industry. Um, so I saw a lot of money and I saw a lot of men who weren't working hard. And I was like, I want some of that, but I just don't know how to get it. Like Dr. Suzanne, Kinney learned to rely on herself. And yet she teaches us that self-reliance unbalanced by self-centeredness creates suffering. And in her case, in the form of being overworked. Next, we'll hear how Australian Dame Natalie Ledwell learned to balance this by taking personal responsibility and empowering herself by working through her toxic money story. Natalie is the host of the podcast, Not Over, Just Different, co-host of the cable TV show, Wake Up, and the founder of Mind Movies, a hugely successful and revolutionary online personal development company. And the cool part, in 2020, Natalie was knighted by the Orthodox Order of St. John. When I was 17, I moved out of home. When I was 18, I left my hometown and moved to Sydney in Australia, which was the big city near me. And uh, and honestly, the, the first five years I was there, I was, you know, managing fitness clubs. I was, you know, talking my way into positions that I had no idea of what I was doing, but I just had more front than came up and went, okay, let's get in here and do this. I was never waiting for someone to rescue me. I always thought I was going to have to do it by myself. Um, and I loved what I did. Um, I felt like I had a life of significance, especially in the fitness industry. Um, I was, you know, at the age of 24, teaching other club owners from around the world how to systemize their business and manage their staff. But what I did notice when, uh, whenever money would come up, so my programming and what I saw when I was a kid uh, was stress, angst, uh, fighting around money. You know, we weren't poor. I mean, Dad would work four to three to four jobs just to support us all, but there was always the stress around it. But I realized subconsciously I was just emulating my parents' behavior. And uh, and if anything, I'm the type of person that would avoid. I'm like, okay, I don't want to look at this. I, I think if I put it there, it'll figure itself out. It's great when you're in your 20s and your 30s, but it's not a game plan for when you get 51 years old now, uh, needing to be responsible for my own, my own uh, wealth. And so when I look at that now, you know, gaining more information, uh, learning how to have my money work for me, um, and rechanging everything that I had that was my old programming, um, and, and honestly, the, the way that I realized that I actually had this program is back in the early days of our of business, uh, we were creating a program uh, with a woman in Australia and it was like six videos and one of the videos was on limiting beliefs and uh, she said, look, I need to lead someone through an exercise on camera. She goes, Natalie, can I do it with you? And I'm like, oh, look, I'm a pretty positive person. I don't think I have any limiting beliefs. And she's like, Okay. (laughs) 
she goes, well, how about we just try it on money because, you know, that seems to be a pretty common one and then we'll see what happens from there. Um, and that's how I realised I actually had a program around my money. And it's so funny because once you understand what that is, I'm like, hello, I grew up in a family of eight kids. It was always stressful as if that didn't influence me in some way. Um, so that was that's how I kind of realised. But, of course, you know, when it comes to your money triggers and, and your money uh, programs, uh, we're depending on what, like all these different situations will trigger different things to come up, you know. Um, so, yeah, so for me it's like it, I need to get the education to make my money work for me, uh, to be a lot smarter about it. Natalie's story makes a powerful suggestion that each of us has a responsibility for our programming and how it expresses through us, which directly impacts our financial lives. You see, the thing is, I believe that not only do we all have a Cinderella inside of us, but that we're all playing out the other roles too, that of the nasty stepmother and of Prince Charming. When you learn to take responsibility for the different roles you play in your life based on your unique internal programming, when you unpack it by literally taking a microscope into yourself and really examining the impact it's having, will you open up more choice and possibility in your life? You get access to becoming a sovereign being. And sovereignty is one's right and ability and capacity to self-govern without interference or dependence on external forces. And that's not to say that we don't make requests for support. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Powerful sovereignty would be a person's ability to understand what they need support with and be able to make a healthy request and ask to have their needs met in collaboration with others in the community. Entering the realm of sovereignty takes us out of the drama that haunts the Cinderella story. Cinderella as helpless victim, the poor me syndrome, I must be saved. And then enter the evil stepmother as the overbearing bully, followed by the act of Prince Charming, the hero who will save the day. And the long-term dividends of this drama cycle is poor. No one wins in this dramatic play. To break the cycle, to begin stepping into our sovereign power, it is essential we take responsibility for our own money story. And so turning back to Dr. Suzanne, whose mother demonstrated the importance of self-reliance at a very young age, let's listen in for when her self-empowerment started. The shift happened in college. When I was at UCLA, I was a kinesiology major, and I originally wanted to go into orthopedic surgery because I'm very, very athletic. I've been athletic my whole life, and I played sports softball and volleyball. And, and, and so um, I really loved working with, you know, the human body. And I was at a kinesiology, I was a kinesiology major. And that timing in the early 80s was just incredibly um, vibrant in the, the athletics industry. That's when the aerobics, remember the aerobics Classes came out and uh, Jane Fonda came out with her videos. All of this was up there. And I was one of the first, probably within 10 people in the world, in Los Angeles, where I started a practice in private training. Private training did not occur anywhere else but in LA. And it only happened because I was a member of a really nice gym. And the guy, Todd Tramps, he's the one who started it. And I just, 
you know, said, I want to do this too. I was a junior in college at UCLA. And I, I won't ever forget this because as a someone who knows the body really well, knowing the type of work that I was doing, kinesiology studies and all that, it was a no-brainer for me. Plus being athletic, I could do private training because I know exactly what the work is. I've been doing it my whole life. It was so easy for me to transition into that kind of a job and make good money. And now in 1983, I made $75 an hour, which is unheard of with a student. But what I did learn was, is that I'm going to be my own boss. I was going to go into medicine, took my MCATs, and I had great grades at UCLA, but I didn't love it. See, I really got a taste of doing something I love to do, having fun with it. And then I realized abundance just comes to you. It just comes because people want you to work with them. They feel your energy and your desire to be help them and you inspire them. So I knew, you know, once I got that taste as a, a private trainer, medicine was not what I wanted. And I disappointed my whole family. It was still to this day, my mother thinks that I still should go into medical school. But what ended up happening was that I... Uh, one of my teachers that I respected so much in uh, Dr. Jeffrey Rollman, he decided to stop being one of the top educators and uh, college professors in kinesiology, decided to go into chiropractic. And back then, chiropractic in the early 80s was quackery and nobody really accepted chiropractic, you know, not the way it is today where it's all over the world. But I, I was very interested because he wanted to go into sports medicine too. And that was, again, still something on my back of my mind. I really don't want medical, but I want to do something with sports, athleticism. But I just didn't want to be in the limelight and um, out and because that was a big fear of mine, a big fear and a feeling that I wasn't good enough. And that's the one thing that I think about, you know, um, growing up, that being a woman wasn't good enough. Uh, being Korean wasn't good enough. Uh, being small, because I'm tiny, you know how tiny I am. <laughs> five one, hundred and five pounds. I'm not a you know a medium sized woman. I'm a petite woman. Being small put me in another position. So um, I felt that I had you know they're my demons though. You know not everyone that that's in my position will feel the same way I do, but I know that that's where the position I came from, and being athletic put me in a totally different, you know, playing field. When you're athletic, it doesn't matter how small you are. It doesn't matter, you know, your color or where you're from. You just play well, you're going to get accolades. And so my way of getting my confidence and my ability to know I can do whatever it takes because I feel I know my body and I know what I'm capable of. I know what my limitations are. And that to me is an added plus. Knowing your limitations actually to me, gave me a lot of power because then I can, you know, do exactly what I want to do. Right. And I think, um, with all the, uh, all the teachings of my mother, although in her mind, it was, she's, a, she comes from a fear-based, I turned it around and I did a lot of work on, um, my inner child work to, AA work with my, you know, cause my father, um, to, to, um, all forms of different, gosh, um, you know, law of attraction. I did so much, you know, 
Tony Robbins. I mean, we did it all. I, I did it all at a very young age, young age. And by 30, 31, I really knew myself and I knew the path that I was going to go down. This tiny yet mighty powerhouse has gone on to build incredible wealth for her and her family. Dr. Suzanne has written three best-selling books and is now in the phase in her life where she's focused on what matters to her the most, ocean conservation and early retirement. Suzanne is an inspiration to what is possible when we rewrite our money narrative. Let's turn back to Kinney, who learned early that self-reliance unchecked by self-care leads to overwork and burnout. Let's listen in for how she found her way into a life filled with more balance. And then about 15 years old, I started going to a church on my own, aside from my family. My family went to one church. I went to another church and the church was the group of churches were called a universal truth foundation for better living. So wasn't Christian, wasn't Buddhist, wasn't Muslim. It was universal truth foundation for better living. And the basis of that church, the statement that they said every day, which we all said to each other, prosperity is my birthright. Prosperity is my birthright. So I grew up believing prosperity is my birthright. Doesn't matter what parents I was born to or where I was going or what college I would go to, prosperity was my birthright. So eventually I would have prosperity. Now, the thing was, I didn't believe I had it now. I was like, it's something that's happening in the future and soon it'll be here. I mean, I'm dressed nice and I have the things, but I don't feel prosperous. And to me, prosperity was something different than than the material things because we had all of those things. But I still felt some sort of emptiness or void. And I didn't feel like money was ever going to get me there because my parents and my grandfather, my grandparents and my parents also looked like there was a void in their life. So I wondered, what is it if it's not money? What is it that really makes you feel prosperous? What gives life meaning? And so I set out on a search for that, thinking that maybe it was going to be my job, my my, my life's work. Um, but that kept tying back to money. So money was powerful to me. It was like, you get the money and then you can do some things with it, but I don't know what it is that you got to do with it. Can somebody please tell me? So it was always this confusion. And that's what I felt when it came to money. It felt like... It was this thing that was happening in the future. I had some right now, but clearly this was not enough because I saw people with more. I wanted that more, but I also wanted something that they didn't have either. And I wasn't sure how to get it. And that was what I guess prompted me to go on my journey to heal from any money trauma, any money, any money confusion was that idea that I don't know what it is and I want to know. I would say in my 20s, late 20s, I started to see, oh, it's not in the doing, it's in the being, in the believing, and then in the knowing. And so this evolved in my 20s. And then in my 30s, I started to live that way. So it was first like a thought. It was like, oh, I have this idea, like a hypothesis. 
And then, and then in my thirties was like, oh, I'm getting it now slowly, but surely. But I was toggling between the two because those old beliefs of hard work were still there. And I'm like, this can't be possible. And then I'd like switch my career and I'd work like three days a week and just feel so prosperous. And then I'm like, wait, this is crazy. You're only working three days a week. You're chilling for four days. You just can't be right. You got to be doing something wrong. You, your grandfather had two full-time jobs. And then I toggle back to hard work and fill up my schedule. And that would make me feel important. Right. And then I'd say, oh my God, I'm so tired. Like I'm so tired, like down to my soul, I'm tired. And so I would say, no, go back to something else. Three days, four, at least four days. Give me four days. Don't work seven days a week. And so it evolved around my forties. I was like, forget this old American dream and this old programming. I am done with it. Goodbye. I will not be working hard. No, not me. What I so appreciate in this money story is that there was nothing that my parents made us believe. What they did was give us choices. And I was so thankful for being able to just go on this journey myself, especially as early as 15 years old, when parents are usually still trying to have control over you, but allowing me to go on this journey myself so that I could get there faster. Just imagine if I didn't start at 15, 40 years old, putting my foot down saying, oh no, I won't, I won't work hard anymore. If that might've taken me to 50 or 60 or retirement. You know, I might have never gotten it, but because they just said, you know, go on that journey and figure it out and it's okay. And whatever happens and I'm going to continue to work hard, but if that's what you say, go for it. And so they're just now years later getting to believe and shift. They're thinking that the hard work is not exactly what it has to be. Um, maybe there's something else. And I think that's incredible too, that it shifted. And now my parents are looking at me and saying, let me learn from her. We already instilled some wonderful things inside of her that she's bloomed into something even bigger. Let's see what sh- what garden she's growing over here and enjoy it. Kinney's story reminds us that we are each ultimately responsible for our financial experience and are therefore empowered to advocate for what's important to us. Having an understanding of our own needs and then making requests and practicing self-care and exercising choice is our natural human gift. We are interdependent beings affecting one another. And so examining our life, our beliefs, our choices, and what has made us who we are is part of being a responsible human, giving us access to more freedom and choice within ourselves. Synergy works when each of us shows up fully as we are able to willing to be authentic, interdependent, messy even, and trust. When we do, we empower ourselves and others. People who are not empowered tend to allow others to make decisions for them, or they try to hold on and hold back from thriving, or they sacrifice themselves in the name of helping others. Each role in this story needlessly generates scarcity, fear, and suffering. Why does it feel so hard to change these roles and stories programmed in us? Well, beautiful, we are looking for love in all of the wrong places. We spend our days trying to prove we are lovable, trying to prove we're useful and valuable, trying to prove that we matter. We're spending our time trying to get to the fairy tale ball as though our worth is somewhere outside of us. All the while, the magic is right here inside of you. 
Nature is a powerful teacher in allowing the flow of our natural regenerative state of being. Let's explore the underground network of trees for a moment, also known as the nervous system of the forest. So a few summers ago, my sweetheart John and I vacationed in Tulum, Mexico. And during that trip, we explored and we swam in a few of the underground cenotes, which are caverns or caves that are filled with pools of water. It was very refreshing in very hot weather. I also learned during that trip that the soil in Tulum is largely made up of limestone. And limestone is very hard, making it almost impossible for most of Tulum's ecosystem and plant life to root down below into those water reserves in a time of drought. And this region experiences a lot of drought. It's Mexico. However, many of the larger trees grow roots that are strong enough to break through this really hard topsoil, and these trees do access the water in the cenotes. So scientists are uncovering that trees have their own form of a nervous system that strongly resembles that of the human brain. How cool is that? And in times of drought, the complex network known as myocorsal networking creates this connection between these trees and the surrounding ecosystem to share a symbiotic relationship by communicating through the microbiomes like fungi and bacteria inside the soil. And symbiosis is when two separate organisms form a naturally advantaged relationship with each other. And so these networks are extremely important for tree health during times of danger. Certain species of fungi can facilitate tree resilience to certain environmental stressors such as predators or toxins or pathogenic microbiomes that invade the ecosystem. And so by using a technique called allopathy, in which a chemical signal is sent through the network, trees can warn their neighbors about an invasive predator or inhibit growth of invasive plant species. Whoa. So surrounding trees can then defend themselves by releasing volatile hormones or chemicals to deter predators or pathogenic bugs. And it was even found that trees can send a stress signal to nearby trees after a major forest disturbance, such as deforestation. So in the example of Tulum, Mexico drought, trees actually share water with the surrounding ecosystem by acting as a carrier of water through its root systems. And this is how the trees with access to the cenotes are supporting the community in a time of dangerous drought. I mean, wow, listen up here. Trees are considered the oldest living organism on the planet and have a lot to teach us about being sovereign and yet interconnected, how to be generous with our resources to support those in need without suffering within ourselves, and how to share from this place of abundance, creating and thriving and connecting with the environment for all. So yeah, what a beautiful lesson teaches us. This nature teaches us about wealth. Hmm. Next up, in our next episode, we're going to continue to unpack the Cinderella story and how to help you change your money story. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Catherine Guiley of makingeverythingfun.com. Dr. Suzanne Bennett, you can find her at drsuzanne, D-R-S-U-S-A-N-N-E.com. Natalie Ledwell at mindmovies.com and Kane Corridor of presidentiallifestyle.com. And thank you to my co-producer Tyler Lowe, to my writing shepherd Tina Overberry, 
and to the musical magic and all-around soul support of my sweetheart, John Bagdasarian, and to the entire Living Wealthy team. The manifestation of this project is simply not possible without them. I'd also like to thank my guests, Dr. Catherine Guiley of makingeverythingfun.com, Dr. Suzanne Bennett, you can find her at Dr. Suzanne, D-R-S-U-S-A-N-N-E.com, Natalie Ledwell at mindmovies.com, and Kane Corridor of presidentiallifestyle.com. And to you, my listener, thank you. And I wish you a blessed week. Thank you for listening to The Nature of Money, a show of the Living Wealthy Institute. I'm your host, Jennifer Love. Thank you for joining me. Inspired by what you heard? Challenged? This is sobering and confronting material. I know. I've done it. And I continue to do it. And I work with leaders around the world in doing this work. It's a big step to even get to the place where you're willing to look and examine your core beliefs and the ways that you could be sabotaging yourself and say, yeah, that could be happening in me. Exploring this on your own is not easy. If you'd like support with identifying how your harmful narratives are blocking you from feeling worthy, valuable, whole, and freeing yourself and in your relationship with money, please book a discovery session with us. You can book that by going to jenniferlove.com and filling out a short and easy discovery form that helps me and the team prepare so we can show up and explore how to best support you. You can also join our free Living Wealthy Community Facebook group, where I share financial resources, living wealthy tips, and weekly money inspirations. You can find that at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash living wealthy. And will you take just a moment right now and give this show a stellar rating on the channel you're tuning into and then share this episode with someone who could really benefit from its magic. I deeply appreciate you. And thank you to my co-producer, Tyler Lowe, to my writing shepherd, Tina Overberry, and to the musical magic and all around soul support of my sweetheart, John Bagdasarian, and to the entire Living Wealthy team. The manifestation of this project is simply not possible without them. And to you, my listener, thank you. And I wish you a blessed week.